0: Hey, again, welcome to Bethany, West Seattle. My name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here. Uh, So I want to welcome those that are here uh, in person. And for many that are watching online, uh, we just want to welcome you and say hello. And so for those of you that have been watching online, uh, we, especially to those that have been watching week after week for for quite some time now, uh, we want to make sure that you feel connected to our community Uh, And and so we do have that kind of online form that if you do have any needs, if you have any questions, or if you have any prayer requests, please write that down Uh, let us know you were here so we could pray for you and walk alongside you uh, during this season. And so with that said, this week was a really uh, big week for for many of us and for uh, our society, our culture, our country. Uh, even for me personally, uh, February 1 was uh, Lunar New Year, and so that hit me very personally for uh, my friends and for those of you that celebrate uh, Lunar New Year. Oftentimes in the Asian culture, it's a, it's a big deal, and so uh, we were able to celebrate that, and, and not only was it Lunar New Year, so Happy New Year to those that celebrate Lunar New Year, uh, it was also, as Hannah mentioned Uh, the beginning of Black History Month, where we have an opportunity, though it should be more than just one month or just one day, uh, we have an opportunity to intentionally dig into the history of our country Uh, and to recognize that as much as we love our country, and it's such a blessing to be here, that there were some harm that was done in our history, particularly to our African-American brothers and sisters. And so intentionally, it gives us an opportunity to continue with the process of reconciliation, uh, to repair, and and to do things differently. And so my hope, uh, not only just today or for the month of February, is that we take this call very seriously, that God has called us all into the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, in February one, and this month is just a reminder for us to be very intentional about that. And we'll actually be talking more about that this morning as we dig into Job chapter twenty-nine. For, so, for 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 those of you that <clears throat> have been in and out, uh, we have been in the series of Job, and, and, and again week after week, I say Job isn't just a book about why suffering exists. Yes, Job has. Uh, topics of suffering. In fact, it's a big part of Job. But the reality is what the author had in mind when writing Job was not about figuring out, figuring out answers to why suffering exists and what to do to solve it. The, the, the real question around Job is when suffering does occur, how do you then view God? And so that's kind of the framework that we've been working on in, in this morning. We'll continue that in Job chapter 29. Uh, Verse 11 through 17. Let me just read this out loud for you. It says this. Whoever heard me spoke well of me. This is Job talking. And those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was the eyes to the blind and the feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took care. Uh, I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this book, Job, that teaches a lot about you, yes, about suffering, but more importantly, about you in the midst of suffering. And so, God help us for those of us here that are entering into that that are entering into the sanctuary with a sense of pain or anguish or despair. God, may the the Book of Job, may this series be uh, just a, br- a breath of fresh air and a drink of water. God, and for those that come in with a sense of comfort, not experiencing any suffering, at least at the moment. God, may you have something to say for us as well today. In your name we pray, amen and amen. So for many of you, you you know that though I was born and raised in in the Seattle area, uh, I spent about eight years in Southern California uh, to attend seminary. And after seminary, I worked at a couple different churches uh, and i'm i'm extremely grateful for the opportunities that i had in southern california because i had a very diverse experience Uh, my first calling uh, the or the first church that i worked at in in la i'll never forget it was as a it was as a youth pastor uh, and it was near south central los angeles and for those of you that are Unfamiliar with the South Central Los Angeles area, uh, though there is some gentrification happening right now. Back then, uh, it was often seen as uh, a dangerous neighborhood, maybe a neighborhood of uh, of poverty, of, of gangs, of violence, uh, and so that was kind of the neighborhood that I first started my ministry in, in, in a youth group. Uh, and I remember so many different stories where the first month, the very first month, I'm new to California. Uh, and I'm new to this job, uh, and I forget which how many weeks in. But I was you know doing my thing in the youth ministry, and some kid walks in in the middle of youth group essentially, uh, who doesn't participate in the church, but came that Sunday because he knew that another kid would be there, and he wanted to fight the kid. And so here I am, not being familiar with this neighborhood and the culture, uh, and, and I'm breaking up a fight the first month that I was pastoring this youth ministry in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, but as I got to know the kids, I started to, to really listen to their stories and, and to get to know their, some of their families, although many of them came from broken homes. And I remember this one time where we did a beach trip, which was about 20 minutes away from where the church was located. And when we got to the beach, I remember some of the students that were just in awe of the ocean, of the sand, of the people around, of people swimming and going in and out. And, and I remember thinking, hey, like, you live here. I, haven't you been to the beach before? Uh, kind of a rhetorical question. And because of the lack of resources in this neighborhood and this community and families, several of them told me that, in 17 years, and 16 years of life, that was the first time that they'd ever gone to the beach. That was 20 minutes away. And I remember a few years after that, uh, after I graduated seminary, I finished my job in Los Angeles. And I took my first full-time youth ministry gig in South Orange County. And if you know anything about South Orange County, you know that it's a bit different from the reputation and my experience from the church i worked at in south central los angeles uh in fact it was a presbyterian church it was called laguna beach presbyterian church and so if you know anything about laguna beach there was back in the day there was a tv show uh called laguna beach that actually the locals hated because it drove in so much So many tourists and and busyness. But all that to say is I had a very different experience there. I remember I had 16-year-old kids arguing about who had the better BMW that was sitting uh, in the parking lot. I remember driving up. Every time I drove up to to youth group, there would be BMWs and Mercedes and Audis and all these nice cars. And here I was at the time I was driving like a 1989 Honda Accord. Uh, going up for youth ministry—all that to say, it was a different, very different experience. No, one was not better than the other. One, one was not even, uh, you know, more preferred over the other. But I did recognize this. I did remember. I, I remember thinking between the two experiences, as I reflect. It was the group in Laguna. Again, not better or worse, but the experience was this. The the group in Laguna Beach, those group of students, for me, felt like it was harder for me to convince that there was a need for a Savior. That there was need for a God. That there was need for Jesus. That there was need for anything. If I was comparing the two uh, experiences in South Central Los Angeles, in Orange County, in South Central Los Angeles. Of course, I had my own issues uh, and my own challenges, uh, but the gospel was easy to present because many of them felt and recognized and was familiar with the sense of need. And so talking about Jesus, uh, it was easy because for them it was like, yes, uh, everlasting life, yes, peace, yes, healing, yes, transformation, yes, I want that. But then this other group, you talk about Jesus, and they're like, yeah, no thanks. Oh, well, maybe. Well, maybe not. Well, why do I need a Savior? Why do I need to follow God if I have everything that I needed? If I have everything that I ever wished for and then some, why do I need God? Again, now, there's nothing wrong with with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with money. The Bible never says that there's evil in money. The Bible says that there's evil evil in the love of money. But Jesus does talk about the the challenge, the reality that when you're living in a sense of comfort, it's hard to recognize that you have a need. When you are living in a sense of wealth and plenty, and when you don't have any needs or any struggles, it's really hard to recognize that you need a Savior. And it's no wonder in Matthew, Matthew 19, Jesus says uh, this to his disciples truly I tell you it is it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven Jesus is not saying rich people cannot enter the the kingdom of heaven he's not saying if you are rich you are bad therefore you'll never enter into heaven Jesus is just saying hey let's let's be real friends that when you have a lot of things and when you're living in comfort when you don't have need, you don't recognize you. Need a, need a Savior, that you need Jesus, it is hard for you to enter into the kingdom of God. And then it says, again, I tell you, it is easier, he's being facetious here, uh, using a hyperbolic language, it says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus is not saying that it's a sin to be wealthy, but he's also realizing a truth. And the truth is this, that oftentimes comfort breeds contentment. That oftentimes in our lives of comfort, we end up being content. We're okay. We don't need a savior. We don't need to worship God. We don't need uh, salvation. A, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you believe you already have it, have it. Maybe you have it, and you're like, okay, that's it. I don't need anything else. There isn't this constant need of discipleship to grow and to yearn to grow in our faith in God. And so this series in Job clearly has a lot to do, yes, with Job's suffering and Job turning towards God during his season of suffering. But more than that, especially in Job chapter 29, it gives us insight into how Job lived prior to his suffering. Job chapter 29 gives us insight on what Job was like, how he thought, how he behaved before he lost everything. Remember, uh, there was a test and Satan took away his wealth, he took away his family, took away his own health. But chapter 29 is about Job reminiscing on the days before his suffering. And it gives us insight, well, what was Job like when things were actually really good for Job? He was, in the language that we're talking about today, Job was living a, a pretty comfortable life. In fact, a more than a comfortable life. And so the question for us is the same. It's, it's this. It's what is our view, not only when we are suffering, Because oftentimes when we're suffering, we we quickly have a view of God. For better or worse, when we're suffering, it's easy for us to develop a view of God. But but the next question that poses in in Job chapter 29 is, what is our view of God, if any, when we aren't suffering? How are things with God when you aren't suffering? When things are going pretty well when everything relationally is going well, when there's no worry in your finances, maybe you're not the wealthiest person in the world, but you're just not worried about your finances, when things are just kind of going your way, have you ever experienced that season of life? When, when things just feel, again, comfortable, during these moments and seasons, is God still at the center of your life? It seems as if we seek God during times of crisis, But never in times of comfort. It's almost as if we see God as a magic genie. You ever feel that? But I would say that sometimes we view God better, as better than a magic genie. Because when you have a magic genie, tradition says that you have three wishes, But with God, it feels like we have uh, an infinite amount of wishes. God, give me this. Give me that. God, I'm I'm in a time of suffering and trouble. God, I need you. And all these things are good. I think in times of suffering and despair and sorrow, we should freely, without apology, be able to go to God. The problem is oftentimes when things are settled, when things are good, then we're like, okay, God, thank you for your help. I'm good now. I can take it from here. When things are comfortable we realize that, or we think we realize, that we don't need a Savior anymore. And so oftentimes we see God as a magic genie. And here in Job chapter 29, Job invites us to a different way of thinking about seasons of comfort in our lives. You see, even when Job had it all, when Job was not experiencing any suffering, we'll notice that he didn't lean into his comfort. You see, he leaned more into his obedience, particularly in God's calling for all of God's own people to serve the poor, to practice justice, to be a voice for the voiceless. We'll see that Job didn't rest in his comfort. He didn't Enter into this place of contentment. He used his comfort for the sake of others, for the sake of God's kingdom. You see, by way of reminder, let's recall how comfortable Job was in his life prior to his loss. He was extremely wealthy, he had a large family, he was touted by God to be blameless and upright. He had status and influence in his community. And and as I've mentioned before, one scholar coined Job as the John D. Rockefeller of the ancient Near East. In other words, he had everything he needed and wanted and more. Job lived a comfortable life. If there was anybody who seemingly didn't need God because they already had everything they could imagine, it was Job. And so here in Job 29, remember his friends are accusing him of doing wrong. That was the only explanation of why Job lost everything. From Job going from the the wealthiest person uh, in the community to literally the poorest person. The only explanation that his friends can come up with, and really the explanation of the conventional wisdom of the day. Remember we talked about the retribution principle, that the reason why things are going wrong for you and the reason why you're suffering is because, Job, you have committed a great act of sin. We don't know what it is, but you got to figure that out, Job. What is it? And Job here in 29, he's defending himself. He's saying, no, I did not sin. In fact, not only did I not sin, but in my comfort, when I had everything, Job is saying, when I had everything going for me, even then, I didn't become complacent. I didn't sit in my comfort. In fact, I leaned more into my obedience to God. And, and so in verse uh, 11 through 12, he says this. He says, Whoever heard me uh, spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me. In other words, what he's saying is, it was so obvious, and and so here, he's not speaking, and and I just want to say this from the beginning. He's not speaking in a a braggadocious way. He's not being arrogant. Uh, He's just speaking his own facts. He's saying... Here, the explanation you're giving me, friends, is incorrect. Because the reality is, wherever I went, people spoke well of me. Because they knew that I was about compassion. I was about sacrifice. I was about giving to the poor. I was about being the voice to the voiceless. And so he says, whoever heard me spoke well of me. People knew this. And those who saw me commended me. He says, Because I rescued the poor who cried out for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. Again, Job, even in the wealthiest moment of his life, the most successful point of his life, Job never forgot about those who had less. Those who had less fortunes, who had less power, who had less voice, who had less influence. Job never forgot. And, and you see that Job didn't just do these things to check off a box, but he practiced radical generosity because it was a part of who he was. It says that I made the widow's heart sing. Scholars believe that what is meant here is that, you see, when, uh, when a husband dies, a widow is one of the most vulnerable people in the community. And oftentimes the widow is left with the family debt that typically the, the husband in a patriarchal society would work and to pay off and to keep the family afloat. Because when they go into debt, there's severe consequences. And so Job practiced radical hospitality where he would encounter widows most likely experiencing a lot of debt uh, that they weren't able to repay because of the husband, because of the husband being gone, Job would repay the debtors, and so it wasn't just this uh, generosity and just like this checkbox. Job was saying, "I for you, I want to break the cycle of poverty." I want to enter into the system of poverty and break it for you. It wasn't just, hey, I want to write you a check, or maybe nowadays. I don't want to just Venmo you something. It's I want to actually get to the root of this and enter and break the cycle, the system of poverty for you. It was radical generosity. You see, Job used his wealth and his influence to help people acutely, yes, but help them break out of the chronic cycle of poverty even more. In verse 14, he says, I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was the father to the needy. I took up the case to the stranger. Now, he's given us image of him putting on clothes. Like all of you, when you showed up this morning, you got dressed for church. When you wake up tomorrow, you'll get dressed for work or for your Zoom call, for whatever it is. No matter what it is, the reality is there's a pattern. We have rituals in our day. We get wake up in the morning, take a shower, clean up, brush our teeth, whatever it is. And we tend to always put on clothes, right? Yes, and it was no different uh, during the time of Job. And so what Job is saying is, as naturally as I put on clothes every single day, this is who I am. Every day I will choose, just like putting on clothes, to practice mercy, to practice justice, to practice sacrifice, and to give, especially to those that are less fortunate, those that are blind, those that are lame, those that are considered strangers. And the Old Testament uh, defines strangers, not just a stranger, someone you don't know, but it's typically synonymous with the immigrant's those that are foreigners. And and scholars like Walter Brueggemann, uh, famous Old Testament scholars, would say uh, some of the most vulnerable people in in this society were the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants, the strangers, and to welcome them, to care for them, to acknowledge them. You see, Job is talking about the most vulnerable people of the day The poorest of the poor, the ones who didn't, uh, the ones that people really didn't want to associate with. Because, again, because of their view of suffering in conventional wisdom. It's saying, if you are suffering, if you are poor, if you are going through a hard time, it's probably because you did something wrong. And because of that, most of society didn't want to encounter or to associate with that community. And what Job is saying is, even when I had everything going for me, I was obedient. I served and I loved the people, the very people that others wanted to disassociate with. And then he says this in verse 17. It says, I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. You see, he's given a kind of a violent image of an animal biting into its prey and holding on to that prey with its fangs and making it suffer eventually to kill it. And so what Job is talking about here uh, is using that analogy to talk about the systems and structures of the day. It wasn't just that, okay, Job is saying, hey, if someone's poor or or don't have money or don't have food, we need to feed them. Yes, Job is talking about that. But Job is saying, we need to dig a little bit deeper. What is or who are the people that represent the fangs of this animal holding on to others? It's a system of oppression that Job is talking about. And Job is saying, I entered into that and, and, and I... I broke it," he said. "I broke the fangs of the system." And, and what Job is saying, yes, it's not just about just acute uh, needs that people have. Of course, it's about that. But but Job is taking it a step further and saying to be obedient to God, to remember who God is, and what God is calling us to isn't just. These acute, you know, handouts, but it's okay. What does it look like for me? Job is saying to get into the system, to acknowledge the system that is causing the oppression of the foreigner, of the immigrant, of the poor, of the orphan, of the widow, and what is my responsibility? Remember, Job is recognizing that he's coming from a place of not only influence, of money, of status, of He was literally the richest person in the ancient Near East, and he's asking himself in this time of comfort, not to just stray away and just enjoy his own comfort, but he's saying, okay, God, what does it look like for me to use the blessings that God has given him in the first place to serve? And a part of that, thank you, a part of that included acknowledging the power structure and the systems that were holding those particular vulnerable people down with their fangs. And Job is saying, I broke those fangs. And you see, there's a, he's talking about systems, and again, of the oppressed people, the, the evil systems of the day that perpetuated violence, hatred, Poverty, exploitation. And I just love that image where he says he just broke the fangs to release the victims. You see, a couple times throughout these verses, Job uses uh, the word father or fatherless. And it was in this patriarchal society that fathers, essentially men, especially with offspring, Uh, were the ones with power and influence. But you see, as we read this, the point isn't about gender, not at all. It's not about parental status of being a father or not, not at all. The question that it poses is, where in our lives do we also have power, have influence? And, And are we using it, again, like Job did, to be an advocate for the poor? Are we speaking out against systems of oppression that are holding on to the victims of the marginalized? Or are we just leaning into, again, our comfort, not disrupting the status quo? There's so many ways and so many areas in our life that I believe that God has given you influence and power over. Not for you to just sink back and to be afraid or to just perpetuate the status quo, but God has blessed us with, with, in many different ways, uniquely and differently, to speak into the systems that oppress. You know, in the last couple of years, particularly, uh, a big one is systemic racism. The thing about systemic racism is this. Here's what sociologist Crystal Fleming says. She says, the consequences of systemic racism are vast, from the burgeoning of racial wealth gap, mass incarceration, and racist immigration policies to microaggressions, racial profiling, racist media imagery, and disparities in health, education, employment, and housing. Now, I know that there's a lot of discussion around systemic racism, if it exists at all. I would argue, and I have argued, uh, that it does. And it's a part of, again, if we're looking at our American history, it's a part of it. That doesn't mean we hate our country. It means that we love it so much that we pursue something different. In fact, we pursue what the kingdom of God pursues. And that's to release the victims of its fangs to be the catalyst and the agent of change and that takes bravery that requires speaking out that that requires going against the grain that requires uh, being uncomfortable yes many of us uh, if we're not suffering uh, and you know to be honest I I think I'm in the season of that I'm not I have before and I probably will in the future but right now in this current moment I'm feeling pretty comfortable in life things are going okay I'm not struggling anywhere Marriage is doing pretty well. Friends are doing pretty well. Things are good. And it's easy for me to sink back in my comfort and say, okay, as long as I'm good, then everything is good. And Job is telling us no. In fact, in his own life, if anybody had a reason to just sink back in its own comfort, it's Job. But Job is saying, even when I had that option to sink back, no, here's here's what I did. And he's defending himself. And this is a message for for us to embody as well. I was a father to the fatherless. I was a voice for the voiceless. I, was, uh, I gave to the poor. I broke cycles of poverty. I addressed the systems and structures of power that marginalize and oppress people. And I would say even today we see that. Yes, we see that in, in systemic racism, structural racism that oppresses Certain people groups, particularly African-American brothers and sisters. Systems of homelessness and poverty. We work as Bethany closely toward with the Duwamish tribe that have experienced our own marginalization and erasure. Systems of human trafficking. Systems of poverty in our communities and our local schools. We see poverty and illnesses even overseas. There's many areas in our lives that we see. And I really believe that through the book of Job, Job is telling us that in our own sense of comfort, that when we open our eyes and our hearts, that there's something out there that we can do. And again, even as a church, we want to provide avenues for you. Uh, we have the privilege of having, of having Taylor as our worship director. She's also the director of the Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation for all of Bethany. And if this, if the issue of systemic racism and structural racism and marginalization, if this strikes a chord with you, even in your own comfort, and you want to do something, you want to be a participant in the in the in the in the, in the repair and the reconciliation, talk to Taylor. We have avenues for that. Again, if we have relationships with the Duwamish tribe, if you want to enter into that relationship, come talk to me. We partner with Aurora Commons, and there's other organizations that address human trafficking, like Rescue Freedom and REST and and so many other organizations here in Seattle. Do you know that the port of Seattle is one of the the most trafficked ports in, in all of the country? Seattle, Washington. And we would never know it because in our own comfort—and and this is me too—in our own comfort, we don't seek that information. We don't even know that information. But yet, right where we live is the most, tra- uh, the, the highest degree of human trafficking in all of the country. Again, we have partnerships with Highland Park Elementary. In fact, uh, I got an email from the um, the family support coordinator. And this could be a very small step. A lot of the families, uh, a lot of the kids at Highland Park Elementary, which is a block away, a Title I school, uh, the, the kids are not able to have adequate food at home. And so oftentimes uh, they come to school and they're hungry. Many of us, we, we, we don't really experience that because when we're hungry, we have a snack or we can go to the store. These kids don't have that privilege that many of us do. And we know that when you're hungry, it affects uh, our attitudes, our moods, our ability to focus. And you would imagine what kind of impact it has on kids uh, as they're trying to pay attention and learn in school. And so all that to say is that uh, the director reached out to me and they're asking if our community could come together and provide snacks, just simple snacks for students for the day. These are non-perishable snacks. Not snacks that they have to cook. It's actual or prepare. It's snacks that they can eat on the spot. And so we'll send a reminder out. This, I just thought about this. I just got an email a couple days ago. And so if you remember, next week, if you go to a Costco or if you get to pick up a box of granola bars or nuts or, or whatever it is, that might provide sustenance for kids, for them to focus. Uh, oftentimes, a lot of these kids, the best meal that they have all week is at school. Now, if you remember your lunch, maybe things have gotten better in school for lunch, but if you remember your school lunch days, to say that that was your best meal of the week tells you something. And so maybe this could be a small start in us, even in our own comforts, that we would listen to God's calling. And it's right there. Provide snacks, as simple as that. So we'll send out reminders for next week to bring that, and we'll have a box for you to to put that in. But there's so many, even in our own church, and I and I hate to, uh, you know, do this advertisement, but again, as Hannah said, that we are trying to uh, recreate uh, a children's ministry a, a, to teach kids about the love of Jesus. And so if you have any interest at all, I please, please sign up. Uh, we're just looking for maybe one, maybe uh, two weeks a month, maybe not even two, maybe once a month for you to... Uh, love on children and to teach them the gospel and to know that they're seen and that they're valued even as children in the kingdom of God. I remember uh, a couple years, a few years ago now, I was an associate pastor at a church in Bellevue and um, they were short on kids volunteers and they asked me, I wasn't preaching that day, so they asked me if I would volunteer. Now, uh, yes, they trusted me with little children and and to care for them and to love them and so uh, I did that. And I remember when we were releasing the kids to their, to their parents, one of the little boys started crying because he didn't want to leave church. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was crying because I had to go to church. I didn't want to go to church. My parents had to basically drag me. And here was this little boy who didn't want to go home. And after the kid left the room, his mom came up to me and said, thank you so much for loving my kid. The reason why he loves church so much is because he gets bullied at school. And so we don't know all the stories of the kids that God brings us to this church, but every kid, every person has a story. And so the invitation is for us to lean into that and to be part of the kid's story, but in a way that brings Jesus and brings love and compassion for them. You see, the Christian faith isn't just about this vertical relationship with god yes it is it absolutely is in fact if i lean a particular way it is towards discipleship and spiritual growth but one thing that we cannot avoid that we cannot detach from the christian faith is that the christian faith is also horizontal the christian faith has a lot to do with how we love others particularly how we love the stranger how we love the poor in fact it's intrinsically connected to one another Jesus says this, he, he tells a parable in Matthew chapter 25 to make a point. He says, he says, for I was hungry, Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, again the word stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. It is a parable. It says, "Lord, when did we ever see you hungry, and when did we ever feed you? When were you ever thirsty, and when did we ever give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes, and when did we clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? When did we ever go visit you, Lord?" And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. There's an intrinsic connection between others, particularly the poor and the stranger, and with God. And so, yes, it's definitely about the vertical relationship, our growth, our spiritual maturity, our biblical literacy, our leaning in the Holy Spirit. Uh, our encounter with Jesus, a genuine encounter with Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. But may that be compelling. May that drive us. May that be the reason we serve others and love others, particularly the most vulnerable in our community. And so as I invite the the worship team back up, I, I want us to enter into a space of reflection, Maybe you are in a season not of struggle, not of crisis, but of comfort. And maybe in a a season of comfort, you, if you're anything like me, have gone into a space of, I don't want to say selfishness, but selfness, of just worrying about our own self about making sure that as long as I'm good, then everything is good. If that's you, and oftentimes that's me, I encourage you and I invite you to look at the story of Job and to be like Job, that even in the sense of comfort of having so much, that even in that season, it was about loving and caring and tending to the poor the voiceless, the fatherless. He became a father to them. Again, father wasn't about, it isn't about the idea of gender. It's not about being a parent. It was symbolic of saying, this is a person with influence and power and wealth and resources. And if you're sitting in this room, most likely you have some of that. Some more than others, but you have power, influence, a voice, a platform one way or another. Will you use that to help others? And not just to help acutely, like write people a check or give them a few dollars on the street. Yes, that's all good. Yes, that's all good. I am not discouraging that. But what if we took it a step further and saying, okay, I want to get to the root of this. Who and where are the systems that are causing this oppression? That is what I want to address. Will we do that? One of the quotes that... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has that will haunt me forever and ever. He says this in his, in his plight. He says, uh, I'll never uh, forget. He says, I'll forget the voice of my enemies, but I'll never forget the silence of my friends. He says, I'll never, he says, I'll, I'll forget the voice of the critics, of those that throw things at me, of that insult me, of say even call me racial slurs. He, he says, I'll forget all of that. But what I won't forget is the silence of my friends. And in the story of Jesus, Jesus is saying, when you serve others, when you feed the poor, when you give to the stranger, when you clothe the unclothed, when you look after the sick, you're being a friend. And when you're a friend to them, you're a friend to me. It's deeply connected. And so may this week be a week of reflection. Who and where are the places in in our lives, in my life, in your life, where you can be like Job and you can bring in the presence and the light of the kingdom of God. Yes, with words and also with deeds. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. We thank you for your blessings in our lives. God, that though we may go through struggles and loss and grief, and those are all real things, God, may we never forget the blessings in our lives. May we live a life of gratitude. May we recognize the things that are a gift from you. But God, help us not to hoard those things. Because we acknowledge it's a gift, may we use that then to bring comfort to others. God, I I pray a bold prayer right now that you would bring each and every one of us, myself included, opportunities where we can live this out. I don't know how that will look for each and every one of us, but I pray boldly that you will create moments where we're left with a choice to either serve and to help, to be a voice or not. And God, may we choose the right thing. May we choose to be a friend of you by being a friend to others. We live in a world where it's all about ourselves our own advancement, our own upward mobility. And yes, those are all good things to think about. But God, help us and never, ever forget those that are without. Friends of ours. These are friends of ours. Not just them, not just the other. These are our friends, our brothers and sisters. May we love them unconditionally as you have loved us unconditionally have you and how you've given to us unconditionally we thank you in your name we pray amen and amen let's continue in